Well, welcome to the No Nonsense Nutrition Podcast, episode number 189, we think. Um, we're just debating off off air, yeah, one of my phrase, um, <laughs> what episode it was, and as the in-going in joke, or in-going joke, right, the, the joke that happens every single week, I'm probably wrong, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Um, we do have, <laughs> Johnny Vismo, we do have a, a, a fantastic guest this week, we have David Robert Grimes. Um, hello, David. Are you David? Or are you good? Oh, David's fine. Yeah, I mean, I've been called much worse, so I'll answer to David quite happily. Okay. <laughs> I, I never know whether people are very particular in David, or obviously you could shorten it to Dave. I get is your name. Oh, I normally get Brett. What's that short for? I'm like, well, nothing. It's just my name. So. It's, it's my name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I get I, the reason I use the David Robert when I, I publish. Yeah, I usually people to David to most people. But there's a, a very famous uh, researcher called David Grimes, who is the world expert on abortion. And for a long time, I was getting his mail or a joke. I would occasionally get angry emails meant for him sent to me. And I figured I get enough hate mail. So I needed to start putting something to make sure that that at least filtered some of them at the point of origin. So that's been quite useful. In that yeah, regard. I imagine you get enough polarizing topics, let alone one on abortion absolutely absolutely so i said you know what I, I, that's someone else that's someone else's battle to fight i will continue doing the little bit that i do hmm. right well obviously we've got johnny hello johnny what's going on what's going on um so david right um i wanted to say the episode oh, i don't know I, I suppose i want to call this episode something along the lines of information hygiene and I don't know if that's a good phrase or where I even got it from, or whether I heard it on another podcast that you might have even been on. I can't remember, but the, the phrase popped up. And I thought that's actually a really good phrase for the types of things that, certainly in the fitness industry or the industry of kind of nutrition and nutrition sciences and all that stuff, um, it's a bit murky, for want of a better phrase. So um, I, I suppose let's start with we want. To, I'm going to talk about that today, but why are you qualified to talk about information hygiene so i suppose like let's just find out a bit about like you the people that obviously don't know who you are what should they know about you uh the first thing i'd say is that i don't think anyone needs to be qualified to talk about information hygiene i think it's something that we all should be practicing and i'll, I'll come back to that mm. in a second but specifically who am i where did i come from um well, I'll, I'll skip the whole parents, uh, story of how my parents met and get into the, the important details i'm a physicist by training and for the last 10 years, I've been in cancer research. Um, and that has led me on a bit of a journey. I do a lot of science writing as well. I write for publications like The Guardian, The Irish Times, sometimes other American papers. Um, and from that, I've gotten very involved in public understanding of science and medicine, obviously, and also in why people believe strange things. A lot of my research now looks at conspiracy theorists or why people believe scientific conspiracies so over the course of the last roughly 10 years i've gotten pretty adept at dealing with some of this and still learning the rest of it but information hygiene is a beautiful concept and it's uh, it's not my concept alas but i have written about it quite a bit uh, particularly recently and i think one thing we can look at the pandemic for showing all of us is that misinformation and disinformation and outright falsehoods they perpetuate very very quickly particularly when people are scared, particularly when things aren't clear. 
And we've learned a lot about physical hygiene. We've learned how to, frighteningly enough, we've only learned now how to wash our hands as a society. Uh, we've also started wearing masks, socially distancing, things like that. But we have to start looking at information as something that is as real as the physical world we inhabit. And information is pathogenic, as in it can actually make us very unwell. If we are exposed to falsehoods, they can, like a virus, they can infect us, they can make us ourselves ill, or they can make us infect other people with them and bring them to harm. So I think that we have to start employing the same caution we do to information as we do now to not get infected with COVID. You know, you, before you accept anything, you check it out a few times, you don't share anything, you don't mingle with anyone or share something on until you verified it, confirmed it. And I guess the one upshot of the pandemic is it's probably making it clear that we really need to, as a society, learn how to do that. We're still nowhere near there, but at least it is eye-opening. So I'm trying to see a silver lining in the last terrible year. Maybe I'm a little bit optimistic. Yeah, I, I, I think obviously, I don't know. I say I think a lot of us are uh, bored, for want of a better, better word, of talking about COVID. Um, albeit, I kind of thought it was inevitable that we would obviously talk about it, especially given um, your your area of expertise and the current climate or pandemic that we're actually in. Um, and I think probably all of those things are no bigger example than than that. The things you just talked about than COVID at the moment and the, the types of typical stuff that. I think all of us see shared even by people that we may not expect or by people in friends and family um you know the covid's not real you know all going as far as the 5g crowd and all that type of stuff like what why why do i mean and i guess this is like the the overall, the overall massive question but what why does it happen like how, how does that how does that come about that people kind of start to go into these really crazy I mean, I suppose maybe like specifically on COVID, like how have all these things come about and why do people kind of get so taken in or believe them? I say so easily. That's, yeah, it's, well, to echo your point, I am sick of talking about COVID, but as a big elephant in the room, we have to acknowledge it and at least move on from there. But this goes, um, COVID has exposed a problem that's been here a long time in a very dramatic way. Why do we believe nonsense? Why do we fall down these rabbit holes? And the truth is we're all teetering on the edge of them. There, we've all noticed now, we used to think that the conspiracy theorist was the person in the tinfoil hat foaming at the mouth who typed like this. You know, and unfortunately, we're now realizing that conspiracy theorists can be our cousins, our brothers, our sisters, our moms, our dads, um, our racist uncles. You know, we, we've, we've really started seeing that. And we reckon that in the UK, for example, about 30% of people, I think it's 29 or so, believe in at least one COVID conspiracy. That is not an insignificant number. That, that is like roughly a third of people. And that should disabuse us of any notion that this is just something that's on the fringe. It's everywhere. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So why do we fall for this kind of stuff? Well, firstly, one of the things you'll see about these conspiratorial narratives, and there's different types of conspiracy theorists, and you see this in nutrition, by the way, as well. There's different types of believers in falsehoods. Um, there is the, I would call the innocent victim type. There's a person that doesn't know what to believe and they're very, very scared and they're being exposed to this and they may not believe it, but they're going to you going, do you think that's true? I, I don't know. Does that seem true? So that's that's one type. That's on the more innocent end of the spectrum. And as you go further, you get towards the extreme end, the absolutely uh, devout, QAnon, hat-wearing, you know, everything's a conspiracy kind of person. And there's a spectrum between those two extremes. Now, one of the things we do know 
is that exposure to falsehoods, constant exposure to it, primes us to be more willing to accept it. And weirdly enough, this is called the, the um, illusory truth phenomenon. The more we're exposed to it, even if we know on an intellectual level this probably isn't correct, the more likely we are to give it a pass. This is actually increased in times of uncertainty and fear. And I think we live in a perfect example where things are very uncertain. Um, the word unprecedented has been used so many times. The use, the use of the word is itself unprecedented, but it's a good description of the times in which we live. Um, so you understand people's fear. People are looking for reasons. That is part of the explanation. That, And you'll notice that these conspiracy theories, whether it's about COVID or whether it's about nutrition or anything else, the narratives that tend to be false and widely spread are simple. They are easy. They are black and white. There's Bill Gates is behind this all, or 5G is behind this all, or that vaccine is behind it all. There's no nuance. There's no subtlety. And certainly, we've. I mean, I, you gentlemen are much... Um, more au fait with the literature in the world of nutrition, but certainly some of the stuff that I've had to debunk in the past has been, this diet is good and this one will kill you and there's nothing in between. The truth is reality is very, very nuanced, very, very complicated, and it all depends. Whereas the conspiratorial narratives and the simple kind of falsehood narratives are easy. And that's a pattern we always see. Um, they are black and white in, in, in what they mean. So I think in times of great uncertainty, like we're seeing now, it's understandable more people are falling victim than we thought before. But it is important to realize that not everyone is a dyed-in-the-wool conspiracy theorist. A lot of people are just afraid or have just been given bad information. And we need to teach people the tools to separate uh, the, 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 the rhetoric and the nonsense from the stuff that's actually reliable and, and reputable. Yeah, I think... Um... So something you said there resonated with me before from something that I th think I heard on Danny's podcast, Danny Lennon's, I think, where, so like I said to you prior to the call, I've got your book, haven't read it, unfortunately, embarrassingly, actually, now you're, now you're here talking to me. But, um, uh, genuine, genuine, and I think valid excuse, my mother stole it and has taken it home because she, she started reading it when she's at my house, when she's looking after my children and decided this is amazing, so I'm going to take it home and I haven't seen it since. Um, so I think that's valid. Um, but yeah, I think I said to her, one of the things like around kind of explaining the general topic of it was something I think I did hear on Danny's podcast was around two of the reasons that kind of people start to get really involved or believe in conspiracy theories is either around fear or I think narcissism or I think, am I right? Yes. And yeah, then, you're, not, you're not wrong. And I but think you're, you're... when you say, sorry, I was going to say, when you say that, it does make it easier to understand. And I think also it makes you have a little more empathy with friends and family when you inevitably get in the types of debates and conversations. I mean, I remember having a conversation with my mum about uh, Black Lives Matter when the George Floyd um, event happened and kind of trying to explain why, like, the, even the phrase, like, all lives matter is inappropriate um and it was very difficult to have a conversation with it but i love my mum to bits and i know i know her, her, her kind of driver on things and i like it's just you know you know you know friends and family mean well and um when they start to kind of go down these roots of things like when you when you kind of listen or understand what you've said about kind of where these things come from you do start to empathize a bit more and understand oh, actually i get it rather than get angry with them and cause problems so i think it's just something that resonated with me and stood out actually Oh, absolutely. And I mean, one thing we do have to be careful of, and I work a lot with vaccine hesitant parents, and like anything else, vaccine hesitancy is a spectrum. There's the diet in the world anti-vaxxers who spread the nonsense, and we can talk in a second about what motivates them, because narcissism is definitely a factor there. 
and there's the people in the middle who get scared or get misinformed and you reach them by conversation by um by look by talking about their fears and then like a like you know kind of doing something that neutralizes them whereas you're not going to ever win converts or change people's mind or help them change their own mind by by denigrating them and say oh you're just a crank and we've seen that with family members i mean the most common email i get recently is people going my um family member believes something that's really dubious can you can you give me some advice on how to talk to them i'm like well i'll try and what i always point out is remember it's a conversation not a debate you're not there you know you're not being you know you know boris johnson's sitting there in, in the oxford union clapping his hands together scoring points this is a family member and you're trying to give them the tools to change their own mind because no one actually changes their own mind or sorry no one changes anyone else's mind you just give someone the freedom to change their own so breathing out someone's neck not always very beneficial. Uh, what is sometimes worth doing now, and you mentioned this a few seconds ago, a big motivator of the people that propagate this stuff, the people that generate this 5G made COVID conspiracy theory, or some of the, 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 the neutrobolics that you'll be familiar with, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, a lot of them are motivated by a different factor. They're not motivated by fear or uncertainty um, or the, the illusion of epistemic kind of understanding. They're motivated by narcissism. A lot of conspiracy theorists in particular are narcissists. And there's a very simple reason why. They feel like they are more special than you, that they have access to some better information, and that makes them superior to you. And that makes it really, really hard to ever get through to them. In fact, most of the research we have says it's kind of a waste of time because they will always think that they know more. And in fact, by you showing them that they might be mistaken, you're not only undermining their point of view on something, you're undermining their view of themselves, and they probably will never change that. You can put a, an anti-vaxxer in a room with an immunologist and a pediatrician and a scientist who specializes in this, all of whom have given their life to studying this topic, and the conspiracy theorist that objectively knows the least will still insist they know more than all these experts. Mm. That is a very satisfying feeling towards ego, but it makes them far more likely to perpetuate absolute nonsense. The problem is they can scare other people. Most of the people exposed to this nonsense aren't that egotistical or that hell-bent on denying reality. But as we've seen, and all of us have had conversations with family members, you mentioned talking to your mother about the All Lives Matter thing, because there's a grain of truth that all lives do matter. Of course they do. Mm -hmm. But the framing of that, the reason why Black Lives Matter came, you need the context for it. It's a similar one. Um, I was speaking to a member of my family who said, why do people need a gay pride thing? Why isn't there a straight pride thing? And I was trying to point out them because historically straight people have been persecuted for being straight. So until when we get full equality, we won't need that. It'll all be great, but we don't have that yet. And this is a reminder that we need to do something about it. Um, and you remember the other narratives that you hear, particularly you mentioned with the All Lives Matter, you were having put people put these rights as if they were in competition, which of course they're not, but that's a level of context. And there's always bad actors who are trying to muddy the waters and, and, People have reasonable questions, like your mother's question, absolutely reasonable. And when you sat down and talked to her about it, I'm sure she was a, a much clearer on it. But if you had just said, Mom, you're a racist, that's terrible, you probably wouldn't have got through to her in any kind of lasting way. And if I called my family member homophobic, that wouldn't have helped either. Because that's not, you know, it's not like a, a social media thing where you win points by being on the right side. We're all trying to be less wrong all the time. So how do we approach that with a little bit of compassion, a little bit of empathy, and maybe not the knee-jerk outrage that 
you know, unfortunately, social media in particular encourages. Yeah, I, I think does that. Am I, would I be right in thinking that obviously that also aligns that kind of the the idea of control? You see, you mentioned about like narcissistic behaviours and the idea of them knowing something gives them this element of control and serves the ego. Do, is it does that align as well with people that where it comes from a place of fear? Because when I've thought about this, I think well, actually when people in a pandemic where people feel out of control because obviously there's all these things happening in the world that they can't control does that does does that kind of idea of believing a conspiracy theory also helps them feel like there's something that helps them you know something to control not necessarily to control maybe it's the wrong way to put it but it, obviously it's kind of this feeling of if they know something that other people don't again they feel a bit more like there is something they can cling on to and control or you know or just that feeling of, of knowing something is enough to make them kind of feel less afraid Absolutely. So um, epistemic certainty is a really common motivator of conspiratorial thinking. And what that means in a nutshell is that if you feel like you understand something, that's reassuring. Uh, If it's a simple story, and also it makes you feel like you're protected. I mean, I deal with a lot of um, cancer conspiracy theories because of my area of research, where people believe they know a secret about cancer and therefore they're protected from cancer because they know the secret that, you know, big pharma doesn't do whatever else. So it gives them an, a sense of understanding, but also a sense of control. Of course, it's entirely, it's entirely illusory. It's not real control, but you can see why it's reassuring. There's also most of the anthropological literature we have on humans shows that we really, across societies, um, we have a very poor tolerance for uncertainty. We don't like, um, as we don't like things to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And often the reality is, I, I don't like, you know, how, how, how is the world going to be after the pandemic in six months time? I, I don't know. You know, we don't like that. Um, we also don't like uh, nuance. We're very bad at that. And one of the things that cranks and quacks give people in particular is they give them very simple narratives, very black and white, and, and a, a sense of certainty. And one of the things I always find so strange with conspiratorial thinkers is that some of the narratives they come up with are so sinister. If you believe, for example, that um, Bill Gates invented COVID to get microchips uh, into you with vaccines. That's such a grim view of the world, and I can't see how that's possibly reassuring, except for some people that's a lot more comforting to think that someone is controlled, that someone did this, than to realize that we are more in the lap of the gods than we might like to admit. That an unliving, remember, viruses don't are technically even alive, uh, an, an unliving thing randomly mutated as these things are wont to do, and has so thoroughly incapacitated the 21st century world, to a lot of people, thinking that someone did this is actually perversely more reassuring than accepting that random things happen and sometimes they're mm. really bad. Yeah. It explains religion to a huge degree as well. Yeah, oh, for <laughs> yeah. sure. They always give themselves an out tonight, no matter what evidence you present to them. It's like that evidence only reassures me that. That evidence is part of the big conspiracy, anyway. It's like, well, how are you ever going to get out of it? And they never will, will they? They saw deep. They will never be changed around. They will never change their mind. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I in, in the book I called that um, argumentum ad conspiratorium. So one of the things is if if, if they're there, it's it's a good example of faulty logic that they actually use, but it's superficially appealing. They'll go. The, the, the first premise is if there was a cover up, official documents would. You know, dismiss this thing that I, I believe in, and then the second premise is official documents dismiss this thing that I believe in, and they somehow get to the conclusion. Therefore, this proves that this is a cover-up. And you're like, no, no, a lack of evidence doesn't prove anything. That's that's the problem, you know. Um, but 
uh, every conspiracy theory at some level pivots on that because you can show them evidence. Now, if you show evidence to someone who's on the fence, who's maybe deeper, like not as far down the rabbit hole, it, it, it often is convincing to them. But you are wasting your time going to the David Ikes of this world and showing them evidence because they're just going to think you're a lizard. <laughs> but I think it was, it was in your book, is it near the start when you talk about the, the cult and the aliens? Like it didn't oh, happen. Talk whatever it was. The aliens are coming down to come and get me. Where's going to end? It didn't happen. And they're still making an excuse. Oh yeah, they 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 rung me up and it's happened another day now. It's like, what? You still... the, the, fun, the, the funny thing is, it's not even that. That's not even the first time that happened. And one of my favorite examples. So in the book, that's it's it's true. It was a psychologist Leon Festinger was trying to understand why people believe things even when the evidence was so firmly against them. And he got the perfect opportunity when he found out in his home city there was a UFO cult that thought the world was going to end on the 21st of December that year, and I think it was 1954. And when research ethics were different, and it was a different time, he just sent some PhD students to go and live with this cult. These days, that would be a lot more paperwork. Anyway, they off they go and they live there. And people had given up their possessions, their, their houses, their marriages, waiting for this, uh, oddly enough, L. Ron Hubbard, the uh, Scientology guy, was briefly involved with this cult. So some of those sci-fi aesthetics of the mid-50s were definitely stolen. Um, not surprising if anyone familiar with Scientology. But anyway, they're, they're waiting there, and midnight rolls around, and the world, spoiler alert, did not end. And as you absolutely correctly point out, they went to a room, and they came out more convinced than ever that they, they were onto the right thing, because they suddenly believed, they changed the narrative of their faith in this uh, alien religion had saved the world. And they became evangelists. And, they, and it wasn't even the first time this happened. There was a thing in the Adventist churches called the Great Disappointment in the 1800s where Jesus was supposed to appear and all the churches gathered and he didn't appear. And that's why it was a great disappointment. And yet they actually convinced themselves that their faith was so strong that Jesus didn't have to come back because they were doing such a good job. There's now 24 odd million members of that church still in the world today. So, you know, this is called motivated reasoning. If you really want to believe something, and that is your, 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 your central precepts of an idea. You can dismiss, you can cherry pick evidence that kind of buttresses your view. You can reinterpret things to make your worldview seem correct. And you can dismiss evidence that doesn't agree with you. And unfortunately, all humans have a propensity towards some level of motivated reasoning. And we need to be very cognizant of when we're doing it. Because just because you love an idea, like, and you're really married to it, Unfortunately, many a beautiful idea has been slain by an ugly fact, but that's okay. And I think that goes into the other idea that we have to be very, very comfortable with changing our minds. But the, uh, there's no sin in changing your mind. It is a virtue. When the evidence demands it, you should change your mind. The only sin is in not changing your mind when the evidence really argues that you should. Unfortunately, humans seem to look at changing their mind as a form of weakness when in fact it's an expression of strength. If you can go, you know what, I believed this for 20 years, and then um, you know, I was, there, I, was, I was talking to Brett, and he showed me this, and I've realized I was wrong, so you know, changing it now. And one of the things, I, when I'm speaking to people who believe strange things, particularly vaccine-hesitant parents, one of the questions I often ask them is, okay, what evidence would you need to see that would help you change your mind? And I find that the ones that are a little bit hesitant will We'll, we'll name something. I go, let me see what I can do for you. And the ones who are never going to change their mind, well, basically, if nothing can change my mind, I'm like, well, they're, they're in lie with your problem. Like, 
And they go, well, nothing would change your mind. You go, absolutely. If you can, if, if, if scientific research suddenly shows this is very, very dangerous and you show me that research, I will have to change my mind. Um, but oftentimes people don't like changing their mind because we still view it as a weakness. We really shouldn't. Yeah, that's, um, all, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of all, but all, all common in the nutrition industry, especially in that a lot of us have got into debates or conversations in you know forums or facebook or whatever and you kind of talk to people around certain parts of the nutrition industry and yeah that's all too common that no matter what you try and because obviously the the evidence base in air quotes you know the evidence base is contextual and nuanced and there's much to it there isn't just a study that proves anything and everything so you can often kind of come up with conversations with people around certain specific things and they'll cite a study you know you might cite a few more studies and they don't really understand the premise of, of, of a general evidence base in terms of you know we don't know everything we just need to kind of be pointed down directions of certain stuff um but w- when you kind of say well actually you know i think this might not be the correct answer because xyz because of the context or the nuance of that evidence you often just get set told oh no you're wrong uh, and if you do have a conversation around what will people or you know what would you want what can i show you i've never experienced anyone really give me an answer normally it's it is nothing normally it is there isn't anything you show me because i'm right and you're wrong it, it, it's a bit frustrating and I, I i know that i might be uh stirring a hornet's nest a little bit here but my most clear uh, version of that in the nutrition sphere i i've dealt with people who are big believers in the ketogenic diet for cancer uh, and also alkaline diets for cancer. And I know cancer nutrition is probably not something most of your listeners think about, but given that cancer will affect half of us in our lifetime, it's become a bigger mm-hmm. thing. And I often see patients being advised uh, to take on highly dangerous diets for them uh, against the advice of their medical professionals. And I have just, to say in my limited just, experience, I just it's say, just, ketogenic just, diet, that's the worst. Yeah, just sorry, though, just on that. Um, is, is it also by practitioners themselves, though? not just by, against. By, by medical practitioners yeah. in general no because when you are being treated for cancer you usually have a, a clinical team it's not just like your gp it's not one person mm-hmm. so you, there absolutely are there's pranks in all fields there's crank scientists there's crank doctors We've come across them all even you know people you know colleagues i've had have had ideas that are out there just because you're a scientist or a doctor doesn't mean you're always right but again, we're going back to evidence base. You have to be reflecting the evidence base. And a scientist or a doctor only speaks with authority when they are citing best evidence. Once they go off piece, as it is, and start making stuff up, it doesn't matter how qualified they are. I mean, there is at least one Nobel laureate who thinks COVID is a hoax. Mm. The fact that the person has a Nobel Prize in medicine doesn't make them suddenly write about that. Um, Linus Pauling, for example, invented, who won two Nobel Prizes, um, probably popularized the biggest myth going that vitamin c cures pretty much everything uh he was absolutely wrong by the way and but but to this day his imprint has been left on that field and i still come to the patient i'm taking loads of vitamin c why do i still have this cold i said because 1971 called and it wants this literature back Mm. um you know but like you know it, it is a weird one so when it comes to the cancer stuff it's usually not a practitioner would say that because if they did they'd probably be overruled by the you know the oncology dietitian or the the, the nurse clinical staff it, occasionally you have members of a team saying something that's dodgy but i find where we have patients who, who receive this the most it's from websites it's from people sending it to them it's from people who are trying to help sending them pseudoscientific stuff and going you should do that 
And unfortunately, we have really good data that that kind of stuff impacts survival. It, it approximately doubles your hazard ratio of death per given year. Uh, because if you start relying on alternative modalities, not just alternative diets, but alternative treatments, you tend to delay your conventional treatments or supplement it in an unhealthy way or sometimes even reject it. And overall, that's not great for patient survival. I mean, you can look at Steve Jobs as a classic example of that. A man who probably would have survived his cancer had he listened to his oncology team and not decided he was going to use juicing and some other random nonsense. Hmm. The, the only reason I think I brought up the just the uh, idea of med- medical practitioners or whoever, just because I'm uh, what when you said talking about cancer nutrition or nutrition for oncology, um, it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, a friend of mine several years back where he said, and I can't, I'll be honest, obviously I'm low on the detail now from from several years ago, but a lot of things have happened since. Um, but I remember him saying about how he was told that his dad had uh, a form of cancer and he was told to basically just cut out every single um, element of sugar or carbohydrate based on obviously cancer feeding on sugar. And I remember thinking, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in any way um, an expert in any of this area or be able to kind of talk about it. But I remember thinking, I'm not sure that's entirely correct. And I'm sure there's probably a lot more context to it. Maybe that I'm missing, but yeah, that's the only reason I say it's uh, just, it just reminded me of that conversation. But. Well, no, no, you, and, and oddly enough, you do have people, uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to name names here, but there's a particular sports scientist in South Africa, for example, who makes big claims like that, and there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot, lot of people with this kind of stuff. And one of the reasons is, I think the best myths in the world have a grain of truth in them, albeit one that's been horrifically misunderstood. And you mentioned everything has to be nuanced and evidenced and, and contextualized. If you strip things of nuance and context, you can you can really confuse the issue. And I, I'm going to use a keto diet as a good example of this, when the cancer application of it. So sometimes you'll see keto evangelists uh, mention the Warburg effect, and they'll say it with a lot of confidence, and it sounds very sciencey. The Warburg effect is, is a real thing. It is the observation that tumors use more glucose on average than you would expect healthy tissue to use. So there's two respiration pathways you can use, aerobic and anaerobic. Um, your aerobic one obviously is when you use oxygen to produce ATP and your anaerobic one is when you use glucose to produce ATP although you still need glucose for both of them you just one of them is exclusively basically glucose and the other one is oxygen and glucose um, and because it's far more efficient to use an oxic pathway most human tissue healthy tissue uses you know oxygen for respiration there's an observation that cancers uh, don't and this is called the Warburg effect now but back in 1924, Otto Warburg, who was already was an ardent Nazi scientist, but quite a good cancer biologist as well, he proposed that maybe this path switch uh, was what caused cancer, right? And now the observation is when you use this glucose pathway, you produce more lactate, you produce more acid. And this also feeds into the alkaline diet thing, like the idea is then, oh, you can neutralize that. because, And it became thought as, oh, the glucose is causing cancer or feeding cancer, or, or in some ways driving cancer. And in fact, that's the cart before the horse. The data we have now, very clearly, and we've had for a long time, is that this kind of increased acidity or whatever in that tissue region is a consequence of cancer and not a cause of it. Your cancer doesn't care if you're getting, um, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're taking carrots or carrot cake, right? It is basically gonna break down that glucose and use it because it needs it for all its pathways. There's no way you can just cut out sugar and make yourself healthy. What you can do, which is very unhealthy, is patients who have cancer tend to lose weight. Mm-hmm. 
and that's not actually great. That can be very negative for prognosis. Any restrictive diet put on very suddenly will make you lose weight. So these kind of bits of advice are not only like they're mis not just misguided, they can actually have very mm -hmm. detrimental consequences for patients. Um, and then it goes back like so that's why the, the keto brigade don't always get that. They're like, oh yeah, if you do that, you'll you won't you you won't be breaking things down to glucose, and therefore you know, that's not how that's not how any of that works. You also get it with the alkaline diet people because then they would argue that oh, you use an alkaline diet and it neutralizes the acidity, and happy days. And you're like, well, acidity isn't the problem. Acidity is a consequence of glycolysis and stuff, but it's not, you know, it's it, it's very much like, you know, not part of the real problem here, which is the cancer. And also you can't change your bodily pH by anything you eat. That is a fantastic thing, by the way, because the zones that you can live at, the pH that your bodily tissue can start is like, I think it's between 7.2 and 7.5 and everything else you're dead. Mm -hmm. So it's a really good thing because otherwise if you went, every time you went for a curry, you would die. Um, and we all feel like we, we, we've died after a curry and, and, and you know, or a kebab and <laughs> a few pints. But that's a very different thing than actually, you know, going into alkaloidosis or acidosis and something and dying. So you can, however, and there's a scam in, uh, that you probably come across that's very funny um, to me. You, people sell pH strips and get people to test their urine. And they go, ah, you see, you've reduced your pH with this because like you, you're, you're, and you're like, you do know urine is a waste product. You can absolutely change the pH of your urine, but you cannot change the pH of your tissue or blood. That's the reason it goes in the waste mm -hmm. cycle because your body is incredibly good at regulating it. So they spend a lot of money on these strips, and you're like, all you've proven is that bodily wastes are regulated. That's I have mm -hmm. a biscuit. That's fantastic. But you can see where the grain of truth is. Mm -hmm. People look at a stream, they think. All these things I've told you, the Warburg effect, whatever, that's all true. It's just not what the problem is. And it's not what the solution that's been posited for it would actually solve. So, you know, I do have sympathy for people being hit with all this because there's a grain of truth and a lot of nonsense. And it's sometimes hard. But just because two things occur around the same time or together does not mean one causes the other. It's raining all day today in Ireland. I wore my blue jumper yesterday. I suspect that my blue jumper did not cause the rain. Mm. Uh, so you have to be very careful of cause and effect as well and correlation and effect I had an umbrella I went for a walk really run I took an umbrella out my umbrella also didn't cause rain but my umbrella would be very strongly correlated with rain just not for the reasons that I'm a rain god I am not disclaimer to anyone listening I'm definitely not a rain god <laughs> um, just for, for so I'm trying to I, I, I want to ask the question because um, I want to try and kind of investigate or kind of get your thoughts on why why do people that even might be very evidence-based in a specific area now let's say nutrition so so people are used to kind of the idea of evidence-based practice they're used to looking at research potentially why do those individuals still potentially fall foul of other kind of conspiracies or misinformation so let's say you know th there could be people within our industry say that are kind of going almost full-blown tin hat into the world of covid and all of the conspiracy theories there why might that happen even though you might think that those individuals would possess the, the skills or the the kind of the mental um thinking to, to basically try and help negate against that how does that happen well, I mean, uh, for a few reasons. I mean, we've already mentioned Nobel laureates who believe COVID is a hoax, and we, we, we've, and the Linus Pauls world. Expertise in one domain does not necessarily transform. And all the studies we have in dysrationalia, which is the, the, the technical term for being irrational, 
shows that it's not actually a product of education or intellect. It shows it's a product of, of and, and this goes back to our motivated reasoning. Sometimes we really want an idea to be true. Mm. And sometimes smart people and well-educated people are the worst offenders because they can introduce rationalizations that are really impressive. Like, if you're really smart, you're actually really good at fooling yourself as well because you have all these other techniques and tools you know, to, 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 to square the circle, impossible as it is. And unfortunately, this is why you have to be so careful. I mean, we've seen it in COVID. This is an expert. This is an expert. And if, you, know, you watch TV and there's two experts shouting at each other. Now, firstly, I never think that's, I, I always think discussion is a lot better than debate. And that's, you know, if, if, if I die young, you can put that on my headstone. Mm -hmm. um, as I get older and older, it's less and less likely I'll die young. That's, that's the good news anyway. But what I, what, I, what I would say then is like, just because someone has expertise, the, the word itself is nebulous. Because what defines expertise? Well, it depends, it's contextual. Like, for example, my mechanic is an expert at engines, but I wouldn't, ask him to perform heart surgery on me, and I wouldn't ask my cardiologist how I should fix uh, bad spark plugs. I mean, your expertise is domain specific, but even inside domains, it can be super specific. I mean, I work in cancer research, but I could tell you almost nothing about how you would perform a cancer surgery. Um, and, and, and I can tell you, and, and most cancer surgeons can't tell you about what a patient is going through, or, you know, this, so expertise is so specific. Like I always joke, when you get a PhD, you become the world expert in a tiny, 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 tiny subdomain of something. Mm. And, you know, in movies, you see scientists are like, you know, oh, the science experts. And you're like, there's no such thing. Because actually, the more specialized you get, the less you know about everything mm. else. So I think the first thing is beware of um, no one. Like there, no one has a monopoly on, on, on expertise as, as, as an entirety. What we do have, and we should be guided by, is evidence. Once anyone who's, who goes off the evidence base starts cherry picking, starts, you know, just looking for what they want to see. Um, that's always important. And I think that's just human. I think the problem mm. is that we are humans. And all the titles and all the expertise and all the learning, if you are going to let human foibles dictate how you feel about something, and there's a reason for that as well, by the way, I should point out very quickly. You know, do you ever have an idea that you just don't want to let go of, even though you kind of know it's time to let go of it? And you eventually let go of it, but you're a bit grudging. You're like, oh, I love that idea. You know, and it's gone. Yeah, yeah. And there's a reason. It's called, um, we have a, the, the, the psychologist in, in Yale, Dan Kahneman, uh, talked about identity protective cognition. And this is the idea that we are our ideas, that we have this emotional attachment to them because to some extent we're defined by our, our ideas. Now, taken logically, that's kind of nonsensical. We're like, well, you know, ideas, we should be promiscuous with them and, and change them as the evidence dictates and, and swap them around. But actually, we have emotional attachment to our idea because that defines us. Like, yeah, I'm a Manchester United supporter. That's suddenly your identity now. Uh, and if someone points out, maybe they're not doing so well, you're, I'm going to ignore all that because it's an emotional connection I have now because that's me. That's how I define myself. You see it in the nutrition sphere. You have uh, evangelists for particular diets or, or training regimes or whatever else. Um, they the evidence changing might feel like an attack on them. There's also the fact that evidence itself, I mean, science is self-correcting, which is good. It's slow, but it, it, the process works. And that's why one of the frustrations I hear from people is, oh, yeah, the science is, you know, it said this a few years ago, and now it says this. I'm like, and I'm saying, that's not a weakness. That's actually good. That shows you that scientists are going, you know what, we re-looked at that, we did some more tests, and we found that this is actually better. That means it's working. Hmm. If the advice 
is never changing, that that itself might be a cause for concern. Not always, but it may be. So I think that all these things together in tandem make it possible for very intelligent people, very well-informed people, to sometimes come up with the weirdest, daftest ideas. And ironically, they can be the hardest to dislodge those daft ideas from because they're the best at justifying it. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners will probably resonate with kind of the ideas of um, like cognitive dissonance, I suppose, or, um, you know, kind of their own confirmation bias, like the idea of, like you say, where, you know, you have an idea, you just don't want to let go and you'll you'll do everything you can to go out and, you know, even going back to the, the, the idea of arguing with people on, online, <laughs> I use that term arguing specifically, um, you will go out and you'll try and find stuff to back up your argument, which is not really the role of, I suppose, an evidence-based practitioner or a scientist as such not that any of us are well yourself excluded probably but any of us are scientists as such but um yeah it's i think that idea of cognitive cognitive dissonance is something most of us have probably felt where we're just really un, you know upset or uncomfortable with something that just doesn't go along with our belief systems um which i think people a lot of people our listeners will, will resonate with i think but isn't it odd though oh people can argue with an expert in their fields like me arguing with you about cancer research I know I don't know anything about cancer research compared to you. So why would I even argue? Because I don't even know what I don't know. You know what I mean? There's stuff in there. I don't... But, it, but, that, but what you said there is, is it's the famous thing about Socrates and the beginning of wisdom. Is He knew that he knew nothing and mm. that ironically and no more. And there's a level of truth to that because another thing that you've kind of, you, you've reminded me of there, is something you might be you might have come across the Dunning Kruger effect, exactly, the Dunning Kruger phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. And this is the idea, and I'm sure you've you've, you've covered this before. I'm sure, but um, it's the observation that sometimes people who are very inept and know the least about a topic are the most adamant that they know the most, the most arrogant about it, I suppose. And part of the reason for that is some people have a psychological disposition towards it. I mean, if you want to see this in practice, look at Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a perfect example of the Dunning-Kruger. He stands on stages with people who know topics really well, and it doesn't stop him. His confidence is not at all dented because he has no idea of how little he understands. And there's another thing, part of that, there's an innocent estimation of part of that, not for Trump, but for the phenomenon. If you, um, I mean, I play a lot of guitar. Uh, when I was a teenager, and my circle of guitar friends was like five or six people, right? You play them and you're like, I'm actually really good. And then you go to concerts or you go and hang people who are really, really good and you'd realize how far you had to go. And I think as you get more expert in a subject, like me and you say cancer research, I'm, I'm okay, I've been doing it for a good few years, but my, I know how little I know about stuff. I know my, my tiny domain a little bit and even then I get ropey on it. And I think that's one of the most humbling things about learning is that you suddenly realize how little you know and that's okay. That's a good, it's uncomfortable and you get the dissonance, you get the ooh. But that's okay. Um, be very wary of anyone who, who, I think, acts like they know everything because they couldn't possibly, and that's terrifying. Because if you knew how little we know on on mass about everything, it's just it doesn't make sense at all. But mm. yeah, Dunning Kruger sometimes with conspiracy theorists and evangelists for things, there's definitely a little bit of that at play, yeah. and that feeds into ego, narcissism, everything else. It's yeah. worse. Everybody's like everyone's a virologist now. I think you haven't got any idea what you are talking about. Stop talking shit. <laughs> so I've just, I've just stopped looking at Facebook completely because it just, it just, it's a waste of time. <laughs> uh, I, I, and the other one I love is like, uh, 
someone said, uh, I mean, it might have been on Irish Twitter a few years ago, but like when the pandemic started, says, it's great that everyone who was an economist last week is now a virologist. <laughs> like, it's funny that, isn't it? Mm. They've all gone from the last thing everyone was giving out about the new thing. And I'm like, yeah, you see, I know even in my own domain that I know like bugger all. And that's okay because that means I have somewhere to go. I have something to learn. I think if you felt like you knew everything, you'd just stop. That'd be mm. very depressing altogether. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that, the, the idea of like Dunning-Kruger effect uh, is very indicative of most people's like ex- experiences I think that, that certainly people we speak to in the nutrition industry like our, our peers you know our friends in the industry they all say the same thing about how I mean and I talk about my own experience when I first got into nutrition I I mean I, I would I never say I thought I knew everything but I thought I know more than you know most people now and then it's only until you start to get into it more in practice where you, you do realize and now I really know very even now i still know i I barely say one percent of of real nutrition science because there's just so much out there and certainly when you start going into that you know you said about real specific domains or stuff you realize I, I i know the very basics of how nutrition works more probably behavioral to be honest than, than anything um the actual physiological stuff of nutrition i know very little if not like almost nothing about and it's it's not it is it is scary but then it's also actually you know I suppose I've just grown comfortable with the fact that for what I do, it's I don't probably need to know much more. Um, but yeah, it's scary to see those individuals that haven't got that far on that journey yet. Because I mean, and I, and I say that because I I reflect back, think, yeah, I was there. I I I I, I get that, and I empathise where you are now. But there are people that come in that still believe, oh yeah, you know, I know everything, and you know, then you see the the typical Dunning Kruger graph, and you realise it. Just move a little further along, and you'll start to you'll notice, but. Yeah, but but if you know, know, I, I see that undergrad students as well. I love lecturing when you're yeah you the undergrads who've just come in and they're like I know everything and you're like oh kids you know nothing it's great because I know nothing and you know less than me so I know you know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when the general like general public talk, look at uh, and they they watch a game changed in what the health they become instant nutrition science experts like no no you haven't got a clue stop chatting bollocks again. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny, like, it's funny just to see it, you're like, um, um, everyone, ha- but I think everyone wants to have an opinion, and sometimes the correct opinion is, I don't know, yeah. like, I mean, during, I, I, I would do a lot of science commentary and stuff, and during the pandemic, I've actually been very reticent to do it, because, it, like, back in the day, it was kind of a niche thing, and now it's on every TV show, and they, they want you on to, I will only talk about this information when I'm asked about, what do you think about the vaccine rollout, even though I do a lot on vaccination, my specific expertise is in vaccine disinformation. Uh, so I can talk about what might affect it, but I'm not going to go and explain mnra vaccines to people because I, I, I know the basics. But they would be much better off getting an immunologist to explain that than, than me. But I have seen the odd gurus who show up at every show and they're talking about everything. And since you're watching them, and this could be a, a professor sometimes, uh, but I, and you're kind of like, you don't. That's not quite true, and you couldn't possibly know all that, but it's not stopping you going on TV mm. and saying it. So that's kind of strange. Yeah, yeah. you're basically talking about the, uh, I can't remember his name now, the guy off, the doctor off Good Morning Britain. What's his name? Oh, I, don't, I can't think of his name now, but basically I have the doctor on there, that's on there, and any single um, kind of current affair that's happening in any form, you know, even some of the loosest links to any in the medical realm, he's there t- talking about it. And I think to myself, you can possibly know all of this. It's it's surely impossible if you have any level of expertise to talk about it in authority in the way you do on national TV to millions of people. It's like, mm, 
Oh, that's going to bug me now what his name is. <laughs> oh, never mind. Does I've, I've just given up watching. I've given up watching TV, so I'm not going to help. You well, he. he I, I'll be honest. I, I'm assuming he's still on it, but he's been on it literally for like 30 years or however long it's been running. So it's, it's not. He's not a, a new thing. He's been on there forever. He's a. He's a stalwart. Or a, yeah, he's been there a long time. But um, what while we talk about social media, um, like how big of an effect has like social media had on kind of this whole thing in terms of people believing conspiracy theories or you know this idea of i suppose lack of critical thinking or is it a big thing or is it just amplified the fact that it's just a another avenue that people can go to which didn't used to be there uh it's the difference between a paper cut and having your arm lopped off mm. uh in terms of blood loss and damage done and uh, social media we've always had these propensities everything we've talked about so far human beings have had forever right we've had these failings that's just part of being human but social media has exacerbated things in a really negative way. Um, and I, and I, I know, and oddly enough, when people were talking at the beginning of the internet era, um, I mean, when it was being rolled out to people like you and me, um, there was this real optimism about it. It's going to be great. It's going to connect ideas. And we're going to have a great time. And as early as 1996, two researchers at MIT went, or just saying, maybe people will only go into echo chambers of things they already agree with, uh, and they'll all become big divided communities and it'll be like the Balkans and they called it uh, cyber balkanization which we would now call echo chambers or, or filter effects that was as early as 1996 people were saying this might be a problem in the future uh, they were proven incredibly right I think overall in 2016 the Columbia Journalism Review found that the fact that we've become creators of our own media so now most of us go on social media to get our news and we kind of cherry pick the bits we like. And we kind of, I'll share an article because I agree with what it says. Um, I might ignore the other article that counters it because that's useful. As we've become curators of our own media, we have become more polarized and less likely to listen to one another and more likely to subscribe to narratives to get reinforced in our echo chamber. And again, this goes back to exposure. Repeated exposure to something that is absolutely wrong is still bad for us. So, Social media has done a massive amount of damage in that regard. And also, it's a bit like the, the crack cocaine analogy. The social media algorithms want to give you what you want. Oh, you like that article that said that crazy thing? Here's another one, right? So, you know, there's, there's the self-selection effect. There's the filter effect. And there's also the disinformation effect. And I mean this in the political sense of the word. We have seen a huge amount of, of particularly Russian, but also other countries, uh, China have been catching up really well, of, of disinformatia, desinformatia. And the reason this is spread is really simple, because it, it, because it makes people distrustful. It's a super cheap way to undermine people's confidence in their own governments and structures. It's been done for a long time. It's not a mm. new thing. Mm. But the internet has made it so cheap to do and so easy to do and so convincing that we have these weird situations. For example, you might wonder where the 5G, 5G causing COVID stuff came from. A massive amount of the application for that, even before... COVID was a thing, the idea that 5G was really harmful. Um, the New York Times did an investigation in late 2019 that I, I was briefly involved in, and we found that mostly, well, they found, and I was just quoting them, they found most of the information was coming from Russian troll farms. <laughs> and the reason why, it's the same reason why in the 1970s, Russian operatives were funding conspiracy groups in the USA. Because if you can make people fight with themselves, um, it's good for you. If there's an enemy nation that's destabilized, that's great. Now, other nations have done it. No one has done it as well as the Russians. You've got to give them full kudos for being very, very good at this. They've been doing it since 1923, as in they've had a, a department dedicated to it since 1923. Um, so they've been doing it a long time. 
But social media has made that much worse. Years ago, to send disinformation, you had to send people over, or you had to buy a newspaper, or you had to bribe a journalist. Now I can set up like a Facebook page mm. and get a hundred thousand people on it, and and it's great. So these problems have always been with us, but social media has massively exacerbated the extent of them. But it has also shown us where we need to learn things like information hygiene and critical thinking, and we have to fix these flaws that have always been in us. It's actually more important than ever that we learn it now, or otherwise we are buggered. I mean, there's, there's no, oh, the, the problems we face as a society, we're seeing them with COVID and as, as a planet, but climate change is still happening, and that's a huge thing. And we're going to have the emergence of antibiotic resistance. There are challenges that have to be met as a world, not just as a country, not just as you know a locality, and we have no hope of circumventing these problems unless we learn how to get rid of disinformation or not to be as badly affected by it. Because if we can't even agree on basic facts, there is no way we can agree on solutions. Yeah. So I mean, even way beyond what we're seeing with the pandemic, we need to realize that this is going to have a huge bearing on how our future and our kids' futures turn out. Yeah. So I mean, the stakes are really, really high, but the one upside, I, I, I talked about silver linings earlier on, the one silver lining of COVID. I hope it's starting to make people realize the stakes are that high and that we have a problem with this and we need to get a lot better at this that for maybe two century or sorry, two millennia we've kind of ignored as a problem because it's oh, what's the big deal well now we see it's a big deal maybe we learn to do something about it yeah I think um, no bigger example than the, even the climate change example you, you, you gave um, and especially that idea of you know you don't even have to almost prove or say idea you don't even almost prove though that you know one side is right or one side is wrong you only have to provide enough um information or disparity to basically make people question things and i think the climate change is obviously a massive example of that in and i don't remember what's probably 60s 70s or whatever it was but obviously it's exxon obviously i think they employed people to obviously try to market against when when climate change was becoming a thing um and again absolutely they, they, they did absolutely set out with an agenda of making sure that not to prove that climate change was a myth or, or didn't exist, but just enough information so that people didn't, you know, they were frozen, didn't have to make any decisions to allow all companies still to trade as they were. One of the most famous uh, and dark famous sayings I remember that came from the 1960s was an internal memo in the tobacco industry. So people often talk about oh, smoking. Why, did, why, why was it so long until smoking was identified as dangerous. Actually, smoking was identified as quite dangerous in the 1930s and confirmed by the 1950s. And yet, people were smoking, um, acceptance was going up and up and up to the 1970s in America. And one of the reasons was that as the scientific evidence became incontrovertible, like with climate change, the tobacco industry spent a lot of money trying to muddy the waters. They knew they couldn't convince people, but all they had to do, like you said, was introduce doubt. And they had a very famous memo that was leaked and it actually said doubt is our product and the idea that you can weaponize doubt mm. it's called a manufacture a manufactured controversy or a manufactureversy if you want to do the portmanteau i talk a bit about it in the book actually because it's just such a fascinating case all you have to do is introduce the specter of doubt and people will go oh there's two sides it's very confusing and move on with their day and not take any action mm -hmm. and that's fine for when things are very complicated and maybe there isn't clear evidence but the problem with that is it's real false balance because the evidence is overwhelming that smoking was very dangerous or climate change is real. So to treat the two sides as either equal doesn't really matter. There is no two sides. There is where the evidence points and nothing. 
But yet in the public mind, with climate change, ExxonMobil's campaign, as you mentioned, follow the same playbook as the tobacco industry. Make the public think that there is doubt or that this is 50-50. And it's easier to do nothing. It's easier to, to sleepwalk into inertia and to keep doing what you're doing. And the only reason people will change their behavior is that they know that this is real, this is happening. If you can give people an out where they can go, eh, whatever, they'll take it. And this is something the tobacco industry and all these guys have realized a long time ago. Yeah. So it's something to be aware of too, that we're all very prone to false balance where we have to weigh things up in proportion to the evidence for them, not just because there's two sides. Daryl Breen, the comedian, has a great skit on this. He's like, you don't have an interview on TV where you have, and here's a, a guy from NASA talking about the, uh, the, the next moon mission. Uh, and on the other side of the debate, we have Barry, who believes that the uh, sky is a carpet painted by God. You don't see that debate on TV because it would be nonsensical. And yet we do it with a lot of things. Mm. So we need to you know, be aware of false balance. And we see it with vaccine safety in a big way. I still get occasionally asked by different TV stations to come and debate an anti-vaxxer. And I will say, I will not do that. I will, I will discuss with a vaccine-hesitant parent, sure. But I won't debate someone whose position is based on no evidence. I don't debate the existence of Greenland. Don't you know that we, we take these as facts and how we interpret them. So there's no if you try to get me to debate a fact with someone, you're giving the impression that this fact is is contentious. So I said if I even show if I even appear on your show, I will be damaging public understanding. So I won't do it. Yeah. And there's a growing awareness that's a problem. We need to I mean, you've seen it with COVID a lot where they put two experts on shouting each other. Um, and and I, I kind of know that's just damaging to public perception. So you're absolutely right. I mean, how we deal with that is just to be aware of it, I think. But it is a doozy. Oh, was on mute. Um, I think, again, another example of that is the current government handling of said pandemic and stuff in that there's enough. You, you can hear the kind of the, 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 the nightly uh, interviews they're doing and they're only kind of giving out these narratives or rhetorics or messages or stuff or what makes enough for people to question whether the stuff they see on Facebook, you know, you see, you see people complaining or trying to um, evidence that the government handled things poorly at the moment, say, and then you hear Boris at five o'clock saying how well they've done. And it's just enough to cast enough doubt to people to just not really understand if they, certainly if they don't have the skills and maybe that, that'll be what we'll round up on in a moment in terms of kind of the skills that people can kind of cultivate. But that's just enough to cause doubt into people that they don't then realize kind of where the real evidence base lies and therefore they left thinking i don't know if this government have done a good job or not or oh no one else would have done better you know those types of yeah. comments that come out it's kind of they, they muddy those waters enough and you know can introduce that doubt enough for them to to feel like doing nothing is enough or just not knowing what to believe is enough yeah absolutely and it, it works the way too uh, for example you can take something that's and you see this in science lots and that's that's quite innocent or good and you can muddy the water enough to make people think it's bad or sinister um so we've talked you know so that kind of you know that manufactured doubt can be used both ways and it's always it's always detrimental to us so i think what will be a really good thing here is the point there is we, we can talk about some of the tools that we can use to try and spot this because it's it's not like um unfortunately it's not a simple problem it's, it's kind of training ourselves to be cognizant of how often this happens and the kind of questions we can ask ourselves that might make it happen less. Is it? Uh, is there anything specific you might be able to kind of tell people or is it really a difficult thing to kind of give anything actionable for people? 
no, not at all. There's general policies. Like, so people sort of say, oh, this is a lot of work, is it? And I'm like, well, yes and no. I mean, if you want to become a super expert on something, you're going to have to put in the hours. But thankfully, most of us don't have to. Right? So when we're exposed to a claim, and we, you know, you, you can't do anything in, in modern life without being exposed to a claim, something like every day, uh, the first question we should ask ourselves is, is the source for this reliable? So if someone says, oh, you know, this is causing this, or I go, okay, what's your source for that? Where did you get that information from? And there's a, it, the, the question of reputability is a loaded one, but there's some obvious heuristics we can use. For example, if it's information that came from the World Health Organization, it's probably more reliable than something posted on your uncle's Facebook page, right? Uh, if you can get down to the source of the quote, I'm not saying that you go, oh, that's always right, but you say, well, okay, I'm going to treat this with the kind of skepticism until you, you verify them. Uh, is the information presented in context? So if someone says, oh, this causes this, I'm like, uh, and is, is that actually true? Or have you over uh, extrapolated something to, to get there? The other thing is that it's okay for people to change their mind. And this is, I mean, I, I sorry, if we just realize that, like, it's okay to not be right about everything. And sometimes the best position is, I don't know. Sorry, I, I genuinely don't know. It's not an omission of weakness or doubt or like, you know, of, or, or being wishy-washy. It's a vision that we shouldn't take, you know, sides. Sometimes it isn't the case of sides. It's a take, it's a case of what does the evidence say? If the evidence isn't strong enough, well, then a neutrality is a good position to take. Um, and again, if suddenly evidence comes very, very clear that you were wrong in the first instance, then just embrace and go, oh, you know what? You're right. Yeah, I'm changing my mind. It's no biggie. It's absolutely fine. But also give other people the same freedom to do that. If you're trying to convince someone, um, you know, breathing down their necks, admonishing them, it mightn't work. But if you say, okay, well, why do you think that? Rather than you, how dare you think that? I, I find those can, those conversations are, are, are a lot better. I think you get a lot more with a little bit of empathy and a little bit of understanding than you do by just, you know. The final thing I'd say is when you're dealing with people like that is choose your battles. There are some people you're wasting your time. There's other people that's going to be very constructive on. You will learn very quickly which is which. And, you know, <clears throat> you, you do have this tendency for people that are really ideologically committed to a point of view to never like Leon Festinger, that psychologist I mentioned earlier, he said a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. I mean this beautiful quote where he said, you know, um show, show him facts and figures, he questions your sources. You know, um, you know, tell give him a different point of view, he'll disagree. You know, appeal to logic and he'll fail to see your point. And then Paul Simon famously said, all lies and jest still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Those kind of people you will come across, probably a waste of your time. The final thing I would say on all of this is information hygiene, which we kind of started on, I kind of segue back into it. Um, I think it's really important. Be very, without being cynical, be skeptical. Skepticism is a healthy thing. Skepticism is like, okay, I'm not going to accept that until it's hit a, a certain threshold of evidence where I can reliably take it. And that also, imply, that also applies to things that we like, to, to things that agree with our prejudices. You have to treat your own um, things with the same level of skepticism as you treat someone else's from a, maybe a different point of view. And that's the only way we refine our ideas and make them better. So treat everything skeptically to protect yourself from it. Don't share information unless you've absolutely verified it. And remember that there is a lot of nonsense out there that people share for different reasons, sometimes out of um, naivety, sometimes out of malice. But just the only way that we can avoid falling victim to it is to be cognizant of it and just treat everything with, with very uh, suspect 
kind of mm. approaches until we can verify it. And if we could do that, those simple steps, you know, we, we'd already be off to a much, much better start. One other thing I should say as well that I haven't mentioned, most of the research on the kind of information we share and that we engage with on social media shows that the stuff that outrages us, that scares us, that makes us angry or, or disgusted is more likely to be shared. Mm. This is something that, that demagogues have realized, whether it's Donald J. Trump or Russian disinformation or people that have an axe to grind or something have realized this a long time ago. So if information makes you really angry or disgusted or scared, it's probably a good reason to be even more suspicious of it than you normally would. Because this disinformation is engineered to be shared and they know our foibles. So mm. let's just be cognizant of that and that kind of neutralizes some of the acidity of those things. That That is fantastic. And uh, the last point about skepticism and cynicism, I really like it resonates with me because uh, I'm often told I'm argumentative and I like to say, no, I'm not argumentative. I'm just... I'm just a, I'm a natural skeptic. I like to ask questions about stuff and you know make sure things are correct, even if it's not always to my uh, positive benefit. <laughs> uh, ergo, you know, arguing with the wife type thing. But um, mate, that is a fantastic chat. I think really useful. I think Richie said on his podcast, obviously, like I told you, I'll just do it. And I think he's right in that now is the t more than ever this type of stuff needs to be shared and get out there and information for people because um you know there's enough going on with a global pandemic with without all of this misinformation being shared around and, and they, you know it's not harmless that's the point it's not like just general it's harmless. not victimless absolutely no. it, it, it even if it doesn't as i i look like the virus again it might not infect you might not cause you any harm but it'll harm someone else if you pass it on. Mm -hmm. So the, the chain mightn't be obvious where it does the damage, but somewhere down the line, there's people burning down 5G masts because they read something on Facebook a few yeah. months ago. Yeah. It, you might think it's crazy. Someone else is going to take that as motivation. No. So we that's, live in a world of all sorts, right? That, that's, that's actually true, the point about the 5G thing. I've got a friend who's a BT engineer, and uh, at the start of the pandemic, I remember back in March, April time, um, I say start, start here, uh, and he was telling me stories about how people were shouting and attacking him outside of, you know, they're kind of the houses and shouting and trying to attack, not physically attacking him, but they were just shouting and screaming at him at that time. Because... There, there were engineers physically attacked as well. Yeah, I'm it sure was there crazy. Were. It was, it was like some of them had to be sent out with the escorts as well, particularly in parts of London when they were, and they were rolling out, there's a video you probably saw of a woman like screaming murder and they were, they were laying cable, which actually was standard optical cable anyway. It wasn't <laughs> like I was sitting going, I go, if you knew anything about it, you would like know that it's, 5G isn't laid in cables. Mm. You know, spoiler alert, it's actually wireless. Mm. You know, but, but yeah, listen, people, people anyway. Gentlemen, I really enjoyed that. I hope that was useful. I hope that was, um, I, I, that I answered some of the questions in a, in a way that wasn't terrible. <laughs> no, it's great. It was fantastic. Thank you. You put across very well, I think. Yes. Put, put most things more eloquently than either of us two have. So uh, thank you. Um, do you want to share your socials or have, you know any ways of people yeah getting yeah contact. so um if, if you're looking to hear more of my musings uh, online you'll find me at instagram at david underscore robert underscore grimes you'll find me at twitter at at d or g 1985 or my website com. don't forget the book yeah. oh of course uh, and the book is called the irrational ape it's published by simon and Schuster uk and it is out now so enjoy very good. I, I was up this morning at half past four and I was reading it till 12 o'clock last night. <laughs> sure. you, you probably know more what's in it than me. Cause this stage, 
I think once I wrote it down, I was like, okay, now I'm going to forget everything that's in it. Because sometimes people say, oh, you know that story? I'm like, vaguely. Pretty, and then you wrote about it. I'm like, vaguely. My memory is terrible. <laughs> Pretty sure I might have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well obviously, jo- Johnny will give it a five-star review, I'm sure. And I will once I get it back uh, from my mum. <laughs> maybe your mum will give it a five-star review. So maybe this is, this is, this is sure. a bit of a I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my mate to buy it. Who's very much into every conspiracy theory around COVID that there is. I said, just read that. Oh well, that I, I hope it, I hope, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you. And when you, whenever you're, you want to put it out there, let me know. And I'll, I mean, my, my platform is limited, but I'll, I'll certainly share it. So just let me know. But um, thank you. Before you go, we do. If you've got five minutes, we do like to ask some um, kind of not well non-nutrition related usually, but obviously bear in mind sure. that your expertise is not specifically nutrition. Um, just non-topic questions, I suppose. Um, just for no the fun. Fear. Just for the fun. Um, uh, these are a few either ors basically in terms of like, are you uh, tea or coffee? Neither. Uh, Pepsi Max. Pepsi I, Max. I can't do hot drinks. I'm terrible at them. I Did, never learned. Johnny, didn't we have a conversation the other day actually? Didn't we about how weird people are that don't like hot drinks? <laughs> We did, didn't and, we? And, and, and I'm Irish, so <laughs> the fact that you won't take a cup of tea when you walk in someone's house is an affront to yeah, them. I bet. So, mm. yeah, ne- I bet. Next, I was going to say, next I'm going to tell you, actually, no, I was going to say something mildly racist, which I, I won't do. There's a joke about potatoes, but most of my Irish friends... Uh... Okay, we can t- I can take it. I can, I can take <laughs> it. Say, You're like, all Brits. We have way more junk on you at this point. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Good. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to ask this, but favourite type of potato then? Oh, um, uh, Rush Queen, obviously. Okay. You see, we, 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 know our, we know our potatoes. Am I right in thinking Ireland have, is it either, I don't know if it's one type of potato or very limited types of potatoes, or have I made that up? Well, we is have very that... limited potatoes full stop well. around 1942 <laughs> to 1842 <laughs> to 1847. Uh, but we, we don't mention the war. You know? It shows you my, uh, my, my knowledge of Irish history is uh, not up to scratch. It, 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 it was... Well, it, was called, it was called the Great Irish Famine. Uh, the population of Ireland at the beginning of it was 8 million. At the end, it was 1. So um, they say between emigration and just mass death, it was, it was pretty bad. Yeah. So that, that, was, uh, that was the middle of the 1800s. We've just about forgiven the Brits for it. Just good, about. Good. Okay. We won't mention the Indian famine because they're still a little bit sore about that. Mm. Um, Apple or Android? Oh, Android all the way. Android. I, can ming- I can mess around with Android and not lose my warranty. I've had both. I will always go Android. Okay. Sausage or bacon? Uh, what's a hard one? Probably sausage. Okay. And uh, I suppose uh, as we're on that, red or brown? Sauce. Red. Obviously red. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right answer. As a colour as well. I mean, you red. Don't mm. put red anyway, so. Um, not an either or question, but one we do like to ask. If you had to build a house out of one food, what would that food be? It would have to be something that's structurally quite sound. So, you know, you can't build out a candy floss that's going to go down in the rain. Um, something stodgy. I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to eat this house, right? You, you may have to. Maybe you are in famine and maybe you need to eat the house. Oh, God. Okay. In that case, I'm just trying to think of something that has any, I mean, my dad's a structural engineer, so I'm going through my head. What would actually work, uh, food stuff that would work as a building material? And I would say really stale bread, mm. but like that sounds like a horrible house to try and eat. Yeah. I suppose it depends how, how hungry you are, but yeah. Okay. Very desperate. <laughs> um, penultimate question: favorite burger restaurant? Oh, where in the world? That depends. Um, you know, obviously, if you're in California, you're going to go to In and Out. But as burger restaurants go, I do like Five Guys. 
it's acceptable. Doesn't <laughs> like guys. No, like no, don't misrepresent me. The this the conversation about Five Guys comes up, and I I get misrepresent, misrepresented as if I don't like Five Guys. I do like Five Guys. I think Five Guys is very nice. In fact, their fries are exceptional. Um, you know, but. I, I would describe them, but there are better burger places than Five Guys. There are, but their drinks machine has unlimited yes. diet soft drinks, and, and I, I do I, I do like mingling and making and, weird yeah, exactly. Frankenstein drinks. I am all over that, so yes, I absolutely concur. Um, so yeah, I do like Five Guys. I think it's very good. It's just but people, I've now got this reputation of apparently not liking Five Guys at all, which I think I say is, is a misrepres- misrepresentation of me, but there we go. I've already got Lo- Five Guys for me anyway. That's all I've got. Five Guys in McDonald's. You have it. You've got the, the place I went to in Cardiff, the cow shed or there's loads of burger places around there the places that, that are you know 30 miles away from me that i haven't been to okay They're like three thousand miles away um last question then and obviously the the all-important one um would you rather be attacked by a horse-sized duck or a thousand duck-sized horses <laughs> i go for a horse-sized duck because that's something i well actually i want to see both of them i mean if you're gonna die it's a kind of, <laughs> you want to see something amazing Okay, I was going um, to ask think, why you want to see them, but as in... Well, because I reckon either either one of those combinations is going to kill you. I'm pretty sure if you're a, t- or a thousand of anything, like a thousand toddlers would probably overwhelm you. Mm. So, you know, I, I thought duck size, yeah, I think you're dead either way. So you might as well go to see the weirdest thing. And I think massive duck is <laughs> pretty weird. I don't know. I think, I think mini horses is also quite weird. But I've seen My Little Ponies. People have them. That it would just look like that. Yeah, yeah, perhaps actually. Yeah. Maybe less well groomed and less sparkly. <laughs> yeah, there's a few in my house actually, My Little Pony. So yeah, now I think about that, I could probably just get them out and I don't know. Uh, them, is, is that because is that because you have daughters? Or I have two. Yeah, I have I have, I have two daughters. Uh, I'm, they're I'm not my own. The idea that you're a brony. That's that's that's, that's <laughs> now in my head now. I think anything is acceptable. Brett the brony. Adults. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't judge. I don't judge you. I don't judge anyone. <laughs> Um, but I judge some people but you're not one of them okay good well uh, a big thank you again from us for coming on and spending the time really appreciate it Um, as I say just reiterate really useful very much required for people so um, yeah just leave us say thank you thank you for listening to the NNN podcast if you enjoyed the show please help us by rating on your podcast provider sharing with your networks so we can get our content out to more people see you next week Thank you.